Hello and welcome to Reading Wave Podcast and this is episode three and I'm David. If you can hear some great sound effects going on in the background here such as heavy rain and thunder and lightning, well that's real, they're not sound effects because we have a heavy storm going on around here right now. But in any case, I'm back to try and give you some more ideas and some really exciting and interesting stories to come out of it, I hope. The first thing we're going to read from today is from H.T. Wells' War of the Worlds. Book One, The Coming of the Martians, Chapter One, The Eve of the War. No one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century that human affairs were being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man's and yet as mortal as his own. That as men busied themselves about their affairs, they were scrutinised and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinise the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacency, men went to and fro over this globe about their little affairs, serene in their assurance of their empire over matter. It is possible that the infusoria under the microscope do the same. No one gave a thought to the older worlds of space as sources of human danger, or thought of them only to dismiss the idea of life upon them as impossible or improbable. It is curious to recall some of the mental habits of those departed days. At most, terrestrial men fancied there might be other men upon Mars, perhaps inferior to themselves and ready to welcome a missionary enterprise. Yet, across the gulf of space, minds that are to our minds as ours are to those of the beasts that perish, intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us and early in the 20th century came the great disillusionment. War of the Worlds by H.D. Wells was first published in Pearson's magazine in 1897. Just imagine since then how many sci-fi writers, how many fantasy writers, how many filmmakers have used the material from H.D. Wells either directly or indirectly in their work. It's just an absolutely fabulous piece of work. The next piece I'd like to read is again the opening chapter from a book called Midwitch Cuckoos by a writer called John Wyndham. Uh, John Wyndham was active in the 30s and 40s, he died in the 1960s, but he started writing for US publications mainly, and he wrote what some have called a modified form of science fiction, which he called logical fantasy. Uh, This man wrote The Day of the Triffids, The Crock and Wakes, Chrysalids, And this book, The Midwich Cuckoos, was actually filmed under the name of Village of the Damned. 
I'd like to read from the opening chapter for you. No entry to Midwich. One of the luckiest accidents in my wife's life is that she happened to marry a man who was born on the 26th of September. But for that, we should both of us undoubtedly have been at home in Midwich on the night of the 26th, 27th, with consequences which I have never ceased to be thankful. She was spared. Because it was my birthday, however, and also to some extent because I had the day before received and signed a contract with an American publisher, we set off on the morning of the 26th for London and a mild celebration. Very pleasant too. A few satisfactory calls, lobster is shabbly at Wheeler's, Ustinov's latest extravaganza, a little supper, and so back to the hotel, where Janet enjoyed the bathroom with that fascination which other people's plumbing always arouses in her. Next morning, a leisurely departure on the way back to Midwich. A pause in train, which is our nearest shopping town, for a few groceries. Then on, along the main road, through the village of Stouch. Then the right-hand turn onto the secondary road for... But no, half the road is blocked by a pole from which dangles a notice. Road closed. And in the gap beside it stands a policeman who holds up his hand. So I stop. The policeman advances to the offside of the car. I recognise him as a man from train. Sorry, sir, but the road is closed. You mean I'll have to go round by the Opley Road? Afraid that's closed too, sir. There is a sound of a horn behind. If you wouldn't mind backing off a bit to the left, sir. Rather bewildered, I do as he asks, and past us and past him goes an army three-ton lorry with khaki-clad youths leaning over the sides. Revolution in Midwich, I inquire? Manoeuvres, he tells me. The road's impassable. Not both roads, surely. We live in Midwich, you know, Constable. I know, sir. But there's no way, no way there just now. If I was you, sir, I'd go back to train till we get it clear. Can't have parking here, because of getting things through. Janet opens the door on her side and picks up her shopping bag. I'll walk on, and you come along when the road's clear, she tells me. Constable hesitates. Then he lowers his voice. Seen as you live there, ma'am, I'll tell you, but it's confidential-like. "'Tisn't no use trying, ma'am. "'Nobody can't get into Midwich, and that's a fact.' "'We stare at him. "'But why on earth not?' said Janet. "'That's just what they're trying to find out, ma'am. "'Now, if you was to go to the Eagle in train, "'I'll see you're informed as soon as the road's clear.' "'Janet and I looked at one another. "'Well,' she said to the constable, "'seems very queer, but if you're quite sure we can't get through,' I am that, ma'am. It's orders too. We'll let you know as soon as, soon as maybe. If one wants to make a fuss, it was no good making it with him. The man was only doing his duty, and as amiably as possible. Very well, I agreed. Gayford's my name, Richard Gayford. I'll tell the Eagle to take a message for me in case I'm not there when it comes. I backed the car further until we were on the main road and taking his word for it that the other Midwich Road was similarly closed, turned back the way we'd come. 
Once we were the other side of Stout's village, I pulled off the road into a field gateway. This, I said, has a very odd smell about it. Shall we cut across the fields and see what's going on? That policeman's manner was sort of queer too. Let's, Janet agreed, opening her door. What made it more odd was that Midwich was, almost notoriously, a place where things did not happen. Janet and I lived there just over a year then and found this to be almost its leading feature. Indeed, had there been posts at the entrances to the village bearing a red triangle and below them a notice, Midwich, do not disturb, they would have seemed not inappropriate. And why Midwich should have been singled out in preference to any one of a thousand other villages for the curious event of the 26th of September seems likely to remain a mystery forever. You may think after the first two contributions that we're on something of a science fiction theme here. Well, I'm afraid that uh, now we're about to take a completely different tack altogether. And we're gonna have uh, one of my favorite uh, readers, Andy McLeod, and he's gonna read the Edmund speech from King Lear. Here, Edmund, the illegitimate son of Gloucester, tells us of his anger at how Edward, Gloucester's legitimate heir, is preferred. Andy MacLeod. Thou nature art my goddess. To thy law my services abound. Wherefore should I stand at the plague of custom and permit the curiosity of nations to deprive me? For that I am some twelve or fourteen moonshines, lag of a brother. Why, bastard? Wherefore, base? Where my dimensions are as well compact, my mind as generous and my shape as true as honest madam's issue. Why brand they us with base? Baseness. Bastardy base. Base, who, in the lusty stealth of nature, take more composition and fierce quality than doth within a dull, stale, tired bed, goes to the creating a whole tribe of fops got between asleep and wake. Well, legitimate Edgar, I must have your land. Our father's love is to the bastard Edmund as to the legitimate. Fine word, legitimate. Well, my legitimate. If this letter speed and my invention thrive, Edmund, the base, shall top the legitimate. I grow. I prosper. Now, gods, stand up for bastards. The next piece I'd like to read is by a favourite writer of mine called Adrian Henry. He was part of the Liverpool scene in the 1960s and made up the triangle of poets that produced the anthology called The Measure Sound. The other two poets being Brian Patton and Roger McGough. This very short piece is obviously a memory that Henry had of when he was teaching. The poem is called What Jossie Said. Jossie said, their dog ate their cat. It did, just like that. So Jossie said, one minute it was pairing, the next it was dead. So Jossie said, he did, right out in class, 
It ate it all except the head, so Jossie said. It left that on his mother's bed, just like the godfather, so Jossie said. A little black head tangled up in the sheet, right by her feet, so Jossie said. They say you could hear her two doors away. Well, that's what Jossie said. And now for my final piece in this episode, I have to confess, I'm going to indulge myself. My favourite author of all time has to be Charles Dickens. And so I'm going to finish off today with the opening paragraphs from Christmas Carol. The reason I'm doing this, apart from indulging myself, is because just recently, the 9th of June, 2020, marked the 150th anniversary of the death of Charles Dickens. Here's my contribution to his memory. Marley's ghost. Marley was dead, to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Mind, I don't mean to say that I know of my own knowledge what there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade. But the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, and my unhallowed hands shall not disturb it, or the country's done for. You will therefore permit me to repeat emphatically that Marley was as dead as a doornail. Scrooge knew he was dead, of course he did. How could it be otherwise? Scrooge and he were partners for I don't know how many years. Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole assign, his sole residuary legatee, his sole friend and sole mourner. And even Scrooge was not so dreadfully cut up by the sad event, but that he was an excellent man of business on the very day of the funeral and solemnised it with an undoubted bargain. The mention of Marley's funeral brings me back to the point I started from. There is no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am going to relate. If we were not perfectly convinced that Hamlet's father died before the play began, there would be nothing more remarkable in his taking a stroll at night in an easterly wind upon his own ramparts than there would be in any other middle-aged gentleman rashly turning out after dark in a breezy spot. Say, St Paul's Churchyard, for instance, literally to astonish his son's weak mind. Scrooge never painted out Marley's name. There it stood years afterwards, above the warehouse door, Scrooge and Marley, the firm was known as Scrooge and Marley. Sometimes people new to the business called Scrooge, Scrooge, and sometimes Marley, 
but he answered to both names. It was all the same to him. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire. Secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grazing voice. A frosty rhyme was on his head and on his eyebrows and his wiry chin. He carried his own low temperature always about him. He iced his office in the dog days and didn't thaw it one degree at Christmas. Storm seems to have moved elsewhere now. But anyway, it just reminded me of something my dad used to say. My dad was a merchant seaman, or as they say here in Liverpool, he went away to sea. And he must have seen some pretty heavy storms in his time. So when there was what he considered to be a little bit of a mild swell in the Mersey, he'd say things like, It'll keep the dust down, won't it? That bit of rain. So maybe there's a case for having an, another episode that might have a theme of weather. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, until the next time.